Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to John chapter 5. And as you're, you're turning there, uh, there was a very famous uh, paper uh, written in 1943, uh, a psychological paper that you are familiar with, if you have at any point in time attended public school, probably. Uh, and this paper was known as a theory of human motivation. It was written by a man named Abraham uh, Maslow. It was published in the Psychological Review Journal. Uh, and in this article, uh, Maslow put forth or proposed a hierarchy of, of human needs. Uh, this hierarchy uh, was uh, commonly presented as a, a pyramid with five layers. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Can you visualize it? Uh, at the, uh, the bottom of this pyramid, he put uh, things that he said would, are the highest priorities that we as humans have in life. And until we have those needs met, we can't necessarily work our way up the pyramid to, to pursue other things. And on the, the base layer of his uh, pyramid... His hierarchy of needs were uh, physiological needs, food, water, clothing, sleep, uh, shelter, uh, etc. And then uh, above that, he says, hey, if you, if you have those needs met, if you are uh, fed and clothed and have shelter, then you can begin to pursue these things. Uh, the second layer, he said, safety needs, uh, personal, emotional, and financial security, along with, with health and well-being uh, but you don't pursue those things until you first have uh, that first layer, those physiological needs. Then the third layer, he says, social belonging, which consisted of family and friend relationships. And then the fourth layer was self-esteem, uh, recognition, status, and respect from others. And then the, at the top of the pyramid, he said, this is self-actualization. Uh, this layer involved the person utilizing their talents and abilities to become who they were supposed to be. They accomplished uh, goals and fulfill their, their purposes uh, that they are driven to accomplish. Uh, and this, this hierarchy, again, many of you are familiar with it, it's, it's taught in most uh, college-level classes uh, on uh, psychology. Uh, it's taught in many high school classes as well. Uh, some, some people I've seen have jokingly added a, a layer at the, the bottom of this pyramid saying that we need Wi-Fi before we need all of those other things. And even below that, uh, we need battery life on our smartphones. Uh, and uh, those are the, the fundamental needs that we need even before food and water. Uh, but but we, as we look at these needs, we're, we're, we're familiar with it. And, and there's some truth to what uh, this man Abraham Maslow said. Uh, that, that there are certain needs in life, and until we have those, we won't really be able to pursue other things. But th- there's one category of needs that, that this psychologist never takes into consideration. Uh, there are some, some eternal and spiritual needs uh, that are even more fundamental than, than food and water and, and clothing. Because you can be without those things for a time, but there are even greater things after death that we must attend to and, and be aware of. And, and he never even takes those spiritual and eternal needs into account. And it's those spiritual and eternal needs, those that are our greatest needs in life, that we, that we will see this morning in, in John chapter 5. As we come to this, uh, this chapter, we're, we're coming into a new section in John's gospel. 
Because uh, John 1 through 4, uh, we see uh, Jesus interacting with and, and superseding all of these uh, Jewish institutions. Uh, we saw him uh, superseding the, the purification system by turning water into wine at the wedding at Canaan. We saw him saying he is the new temple. So the old temple is uh, over and will be torn down. But Jesus is the new temple, uh, the new place that we are called to worship God. He's replacing the, the rabbi. Uh, we saw him in his conversation with Nicodemus uh, that Jesus is the one who teaches teaches the teacher in Israel. Uh, and then he supersedes even Jacob, the, the forefather of uh, Israel and the forefather of the, the Samaritans in John chapter 4. Then here in John chapter 5, all the way through John chapter 12, there's now going to be an emphasis uh, upon Jewish feasts, uh, these Jewish festivals, these Jewish holy days. And each of the, the main uh, portions of the gospel from this point forward is going to, to be rooted in a setting around one of these Jewish feasts. Uh, in chapter 5, we're going to see that it is uh, centered on the Sabbath, uh, the weekly holy day in Judaism. Chapter 6, we're going to see uh, that that's, that narrative is rooted in uh, the Feast of Passover. Now, chapters uh, really 7 through 10 are all going to be uh, focused upon the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. Uh, and uh, then uh, the last part of chapter 10 is going to be the Feast of Dedication, which is also known as Hanukkah. So each of these feasts is going to be the, the central focus uh, moving forward. And uh, if, if you just think about our own feasts in, in the fall here, we have a couple of big holidays coming up in our American culture. And each of those holidays uh, has symbolism attached to it, right? Uh, Thanksgiving, what are we thinking back to? The pilgrims and the Indians, yeah, and how God provided for those who, who first came to America uh, that first hard winter. And they give thanks to God for those things. There's a, there's a symbolism connected with all of our uh, feasts and festivals as a culture. And you can look at any culture around the world, and it's always going to have a, uh, some symbolic meaning behind it. And so as we come to these next few chapters in John's Gospel, we'll, we'll be talking about these, these Jewish festivals, because as we, as we understand these festivals, we'll understand what Jesus is saying uh, as he teaches in these settings. But also, what we're going to see in John chapter 5 is going to be a new attitude between uh, or from the Jewish leaders. See, previously in, in John 1 through 4, the Jewish leaders were kind of skeptical about Jesus. Like, who is this guy? What is he doing? What is he about? Uh, they were kind of apathetic. As long as he doesn't really mess with what they've developed in their uh, false religion, they're going to leave him alone. But as we're, we're going to see, Jesus begins to meddle. He begins to speak and to address the false religious system that they had developed and that they, had, they are now holding the entire nation of Israel captive to. And John chapter 5 is going to mark uh, the beginning of a, uh, a growing hostility towards Jesus and his ministry. Now we're going to see in, in the middle of John uh, chapter 5, if you just look at verses 16 through 18, which we'll look in, in coming weeks, but it says, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. And this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's what we are going to begin to see, that now there is a, a great animosity on the part of the Jewish leaders. They're, they're, they're no longer on the fence towards Jesus. They're like, hey, this guy needs to die. 
We can't have him teaching these things. Breaking the Sabbath and calling himself equal with God the Father. So there's this growing hatred and animosity towards Jesus that's going to culminate in his unjust arrest and unjust trial and ultimately the murder of Jesus. And again, at one of these Jewish festivals, the Passover. We're going to see all of that moving forward in this gospel. But now as we, as we come to John chapter 5, there's, there's one sense that Jesus has been on trial for the entire book. As soon as he came onto the scene in John chapter 1, he, he's been on trial because really he, he's presenting himself to us and now we need to make a decision regarding who he is. Remember, John's purpose in writing this gospel, see at the end of the, the gospel in John chapter 20, that he's writing to convince us that Jesus is the Son of God and that we need to believe in him so that we would have eternal life. He's writing to convince us of that. So Jesus has, has been on trial at one, in one sense from the very beginning of the book, but in, in another sense, John chapter 5 is going to be a, a courtroom drama in and of itself. Uh, and uh, the, the first paragraph there, John chapter 5, verses 1 through uh, the first half of verse 9, which is going to tell us about the supposed crime that Jesus commits, uh, the healing on the Sabbath. The next paragraph, uh, the last part of verse 9 and through verse uh, 15, it's going to be the investigation of that supposed crime. So the the Jewish leaders going and and asking the man who was healed, hey, who who did this? And what are you doing walking around on the Sabbath carrying your bed? Then in verses 16 through 18, which we read a few minutes ago, it's going to tell us the charges that the Jewish leaders were bringing upon Jesus. There's a supposed crime, there's an investigation, and they say, hey, here's what we are charging you with. You're breaking the Sabbath, and you're making yourself equal with God. And then, verses 19 through 47, this is going to be a great passage when we get to it, but it's Jesus making his defense, saying, hey, uh, you're accusing me of these crimes, but here's why I can heal on the Sabbath. Here's the authority that I have, and here are the witnesses that prove that Jesus is exactly who he says he is going to be an amazing courtroom drama as we study this chapter, but this morning I just want to look at the supposed crime. Now, verses 1 through 9a, and uh, we're going to look at these verses, and we're going to see Jesus passing by this pool of Bethesda, and and as he, he comes to this pool, he's going to pause because he's going to see... Uh, this enormous crowd of people just laying on the ground. This mass of humanity is going to describe them as invalids. Jesus is going to to see the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed who had gathered there in hopes of being healed. And Jesus is going to see one particular man among the many, and he's going to have compassion upon him. He's going to see this man's great need, and Jesus is going to act. He's going to offer to heal him. And if you begin reading with me in verse 1, we'll read through uh, verse 9. So after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, And one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. 
When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Take up your bed, or get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now some of you who are following along uh, in either the, the New American Standard or the New King James, you notice that there was a difference between what you were probably reading and what I read in the ESV. Uh, you notice that the, the ESV left out the last part of verse 3 and all of verse 4. Uh, and those words that the NASB and other translations include uh, are trying to explain verse 7. Uh, and those words that the, the NASB contained but the ESV left out. At the end of uh, verse 3, it says, The blind, the lame, and the paralyzed were there waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now, because there's this, this big difference between the, what the ESV has and what the NASB has, I thought it would be helpful just to pause and let me explain that for a second because uh, that may raise a few questions and a few eyebrows. Uh, and so th- the difference comes uh, from the fact that in the earliest and best of our Greek manuscripts, and we have thousands of ancient manuscripts, copies of individual books of uh, the New Testament and uh, copies of the entire New Testament. And in the, the earliest copies, uh, and the earliest copies are going to be the, the best uh, copies uh, of this uh, original writing, the earliest copies do not have... Uh, these words, the last part of verse 3 and all of verse 4. In fact, uh, there is no Greek manuscript of the Gospel of John uh, prior to 400 uh, that has that verse uh, in uh, in the Greek text. And many manuscripts in the Greek mark that little section as being something that was added in later. And the reason we can tell that is because we have all of these different texts and we can say, hey, uh, these texts, which are the, the earliest, have it. Uh, this t- text family over here has it, but it's worded this way. And then something, so this uh, group of texts over here in this part of uh, the ancient Near East has a, a different wording and different things. So kind of by process of elimination, we're able to, to see uh, that this is probably something that was added in later. Additionally, the words that are used here in the Greek are not used by John anywhere else. These are words that John was not accustomed uh, to using or writing uh, as he uh, wrote down uh, the gospel uh, in his eyewitness account. Uh, And uh, even in the manuscripts that do have this passage, many of them disagree with one another on the wording. Uh, So, and as I say all of that, uh, you should by no means doubt what you have sitting there in your lap in the Word of God. In fact, we have an even greater confidence because we have so many manuscripts that we are able to say, hey, you know what, I think this is added in later. And we're going to come to other passages in John's Gospel, uh, some famous accounts that are going to have be qualified in those same uh, ways. Uh, But we can still trust God's Word and still go to it. Uh, a key on some of these passages that, that that there's evidence that they may have been added later. We want to exercise caution and not build our theology upon one of these passages alone. 
there's something that's taught in only one of these passages, we want to be hesitant to build our theology just on that. But because uh, this passage, what's been added, doesn't really change the meaning of the passage. It was, you can see how it would be maybe added in because somebody wants to explain. Verse 7, because when it says that everyone's waiting around uh, for the water to be stirred, that just naturally raises the question, well, what happens when the water is stirred? Uh, and so somebody probably added this in later to try and explain that. But as we look at uh, this passage and as we study it together this morning, we can absolutely trust, uh, trust it as Scripture and as uh, something that has meaning for us today. And it is still trustworthy. And as we look at it, we're going to see that it has much to say about who we are as human beings. And who we are as human beings is naturally going to have implications for what our greatest needs are. What are those needs? Uh, and that's what we are going to, to see. Who are we and what do we need in life? Right? Easy question to answer, right? Uh, and it will be answered in a limited way as we just look at this, uh, this text. We're going to see three truths about who we are as humans. And then those truths, each one of them is going to reveal one of our greatest needs. Uh, and this first need that we're going to see, this first truth... It's in verses 1 through 4, or 1 through 3, and it is this, that we are spiritually sick and therefore we need spiritual healing. And as, we, as we just read these verses, we see Jesus going up to Jerusalem uh, during one of the feasts. And we're not told which feast it is, uh, but the emphasis isn't so much on the feast as it is on the day of the week. Uh, that These things took place on the Sabbath, and that's where the controversy is going to arise for the rest of the chapter. Uh, and Jesus comes to this pool of Bethesda, which is near the, the sheep gate. Uh, Nehemiah 3 talks about uh, that this sheep gate was built uh, by the priests during the days of Nehemiah as they're rebuilding uh, the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, and modern excavations uh, have actually found this exact pool. Uh, it's now known as the Pool of St. Anne. And it's actually two pools that are right next to one another. Uh, and they're said, described as having five colonnades. There's, there's four that surround uh, the pool. And then there's one that's right in between the two pools. Uh, so what's amazing is that what, what the Bible has written and described this pool during the time of Jesus, we have actually found and unearthed archaeologically today. Again, God's Word is completely trustworthy. And as we see... In verse 3, that when, when Jesus comes to this pool, that there is this, this mass of humanity. It says a, a multitude of people. And you can, you can imagine with me just what that would look like. To come upon a scene and see all of these people who are in pain and not able to move. Maybe groaning and uncomfortable. And there may be loved ones there who are with them to assist them to try and get them into this pool of water when the water uh, is stirred. You can imagine how heartbreaking that scene would be. And it's intended to capture our attention. It's intended to, to pierce our hearts and, and to show us something. As we look at this crowd of invalids, that, that same crowd pierce the heart of Christ. And he's going to be moved to perform a miracle. And each of the miracles that, that are recorded in John's gospel was, was recorded and chosen selectively. 
Again, at the end of John's Gospel, he says, if I, if I had written down everything that Jesus had done, all of the books in the world wouldn't be able to contain everything that Jesus did in his earthly ministry. So we know that the, the miracles that, that John chose were, were chose for a reason. That they, they are intended to teach us things. And all of the miracles that are recorded in John's Gospel and the other Gospels, they all point to the deity of Jesus. They all demonstrate his power, that he is more than just a man. But they also teach us things about our salvation. They teach us about what it means to be in right relationship with God. And the miracles point us to other truths about believing and looking to Christ in faith. They teach us about what he is able to do. Last week we saw uh, the miracle of Jesus healing uh, the royal official's son. And the emphasis there is that what did that royal official have to do? He had to trust in the word of Jesus. Even though he couldn't see the miracle, he had to go home, depart, simply trusting in what Jesus had said. Later on in John's gospel, in John chapter 9, Jesus is going to heal a man who was born blind. And, and the, the message there is that Jesus is able to give sight to the spiritually blind. John chapter 11 Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. A physical healing to demonstrate that Jesus is able to raise those who are spiritually dead. Each of the the miracles in this gospel is an illustration. It's a physical picture of an invisible spiritual reality. How else would we be convinced that Jesus is able to raise the spiritually dead? How else would we be convinced that Jesus is able to give sight to the spiritually blind? We wouldn't, but these miracles help us to see and understand that. It it moves us from what we can see and know to what we can't necessarily see and touch and behold. And as Jesus heals those who are paralyzed, as he cleanses lepers, as he sets the demon-possessed free, we learn more about our own salvation, how we are spiritually paralyzed, how we are in need of cleansing from the permeating power of sin, and how we need to be set free from its bondage over our lives. In this miracle, Jesus sees a man who is physically sick and he physically heals him. But as we look at this humanity around the pool of Bethesda, we're to see a picture of spiritual sickness that we all have. We are to see ourselves in this mass of humanity, in this crowd around the pool. And this is going to be a picture of spiritual sickness that we all have and a picture of the spiritual healing that we all need. It's a simple connection, right? Uh, and again, of our, our condition is going to determine what our need is. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus says, Who is it that needs a physician? Talk to me. It's the sick, right? The healthy don't need a physician. It's the sick who need a physician. Our condition determines our need. Uh, as it... Uh, someone who played sports and athletics. When, when someone is injured on the field, who is it that they need? They need the trainer. They, they need the attention of the medical staff. When there is a, a city, a state, or a region that, that's been struck by a natural disaster, that's, that's the location, that's the place that needs relief. Just a few weeks ago, uh, there was a, a hurricane that struck the Bahamas. And what's amazing is that the Bahamas were struck by this hurricane. It was one of the slowest moving hurricanes in history. Like, so why was it such a big deal? Well, Hurricane Dorian was a Category 5 storm. So it had sustained winds of 185 miles an hour with gusts up to 220 miles an hour. 
But even though the, the winds in the hurricane were moving so fast, the hurricane itself was only moving at one and a half miles an hour. So, so it came to the Bahamas, and it was over parts of the Bahamas for 36 hours. Usually a hurricane comes and it, and it blows through quickly. What do you do with winds of that nature and then probably two feet of rain? What do you do when that's coming upon you for 36 hours? What do you do? You, when we look at those statistics and we look at the size of this storm, it's easy to, to comprehend why the Bahamas are in great need of relief afterwards. Why their greatest need is they need aid. They need food, water, shelters to become, uh, and they need their infrastructure rebuilt. They need aid and they need it right now. It's easy to, to see the condition of uh, where a hurricane hit and say, man, this is what they need most right now. But we have a slower willingness. We're slower to comprehend or acknowledge the great need that we face because of our spiritual sickness. It's really easy to see other people's needs, but we're slow to acknowledge our own. And all of us, all of humanity, suffer from this spiritual sickness caused by sin. We've all gone astray. Rather than worshiping God, our Creator, We've chosen to worship the creation. Instead of loving Him and giving Him honor, we, we choose to, to love other things that He has created. And we seek to be autonomous from Him. But we were created to be worshipers. So some people just say, well, I don't worship anything. I don't, they don't believe in God. They just think that they're not worshiping anyone or anything. But again, we were created to be worshipers. So if you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping someone or something else. You're turning to an idol. That can be money, possessions, pleasure, or people. But you turn to that person, you turn to that thing because you think that it will make you happy, that it will be the solution to your problems. And ultimately, that's sin. And we need to be convinced that, that our sin leads to a spiritual sickness, a spiritual sickness that culminates in death. It's terminal for all of us. Hebrews 9.27 says that just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. And therein lies our greatest need. We have a spiritual sickness that is looming over us. A spiritual sickness that can only be healed by someone who is spiritual. We may have food and water and clothing. You may have safety in this life. You may have financial and emotional security. You may have the comfort of friends and family. You may have a high self-esteem. You maybe have even achieved self-actualization, according to Abraham Maslow. You, you can achieve all of those things and have all of those needs met and still not have this need met. You may still be lacking a spiritual healing from your sin. And unless you are spiritually healed by Christ, your sin will kill you. Later on in John chapter 8, Jesus is going to say this. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. We all need this spiritual healing that comes through faith in Christ by looking to who He is as the Son of God and what He accomplished on our behalf on the cross. 
paying the penalty for our sin, bearing all of our guilt, all of our shame, enduring the wrath of God, and then when we place our faith and trust in Him, we get all of His righteousness. It's placed upon us. That is the healing that we receive. That is the first and the greatest need that we see in this passage. That we are all spiritually sick and therefore we need spiritual healing. The second truth that we see about ourselves comes in verses 4 through 9. That we are completely helpless and therefore we need divine intervention. If you look with me at those verses. One man who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. So Jesus sees this particular man and he has compassion upon him. And Jesus is the one who initiates And Jesus asks this question, do you want to be healed? And and you're probably thinking like, Jesus, why do you need to ask that? Of course he wants to be healed, right? And and Jesus is asking that question, not because he's unsure of whether or not the man wants to be healed, but he's asking it to start the conversation. Not like, hey, how's your day going? Well, I've been sick for 38 years, Jesus, so it's been kind of rough lately. Uh, Jesus is saying, hey, do you want to be healed? Let Let me give you some hope. Let me start this conversation with you. What's amazing is that this man has been sick. He's had this condition for 38 years. That's longer than than Jesus has been on the earth at that point in time. Jesus was probably in his early 30s, and this man has been, been sick for 38 years. It's a long time. And Jesus... Jesus is going to be this man's source of help. Because what's interesting... Is Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And then this man's answer shows where he has placed his hope. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And what is, what's the man's response? Yeah, I do. But what does he not have? He doesn't have somebody else to put him into the water. So this man sees that the only thing prohibiting him from being healed is someone to help him get to the pool of Bethesda. When the water is stirred up. He says, hey, I I want to be healed. I I want to go into the water, but I just don't have someone to help me. And this man's response shows that where has he placed his hope? Where has he placed his faith? In the power of this this water to heal him. And I would just say, hey, how's that working out for you? We don't know how long he's been there at uh, the side of this pool... We know how long he has been sick. And Jesus, seeing how long he has had this condition, has compassion upon him. And Jesus is going to be the source of help that this man needs. But Jesus isn't going to just pick him up and put him in the pool. Right? Because that's what this man wants. Hey, I just need some way to get me into the pool. Jesus is not going to be that. No, Jesus speaks. Jesus commands. This man who has been sick, who's been an invalid, is healed at the word of Jesus. And Jesus is going to issue just three simple commands. Get up, take up, walk. Rise up from where you are. Take up your mattress. Take up your bedding. 
and go. Walk. And this man obeys. He takes up his bed and he walks. This man was in a helpless condition. He had a great need for someone else to help him. Couldn't help himself. Couldn't heal himself. But Jesus could. Once again, this miracle is intended to communicate something to us and something about us. That we are just like this man. We are spiritually helpless to save ourselves. We need this spiritual healing because we are spiritually sick. But it's a healing that must come from outside of ourselves. If you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where's the solution to our problems according to his worldview? It's inside of us, right? Well, it flips the, the biblical worldview on its head. Scripture says, no, the problem lies within us. Yes, there are some occasions where people sin against us. There are some situations where the problem lies with outside of us. But our greatest need, our greatest problem lies within us. And our greatest hope, the solution to that problem lies outside of us. It lies with Christ. That is what we see and that's what we are called to understand here in this passage our complete inability our our utter helplessness and so we need divine intervention there's once a a large ocean liner called the rio de janeiro uh, and uh, go figure it it was sailing from china to america i don't know how it gets that uh, brazilian name uh, going that route but uh, that's what it was called uh, and the ship was trying to, to navigate the the harbor in san francisco uh, in the fog at night uh, and uh, you, you can guess where this is going if you try and navigate the san francisco harbor in the fog at night the, the ship struck a rock uh, and it was uh, going down being dashed to pieces and the wreckage uh, littering the entire harbor and all of its beaches and there were many who drowned on that ship that night but there later on a newspaper published an article about a, a young american journalist who had been on that great large ocean liner uh, and, and he had been on it and uh, at some point during the the ship breaking apart he had both of his legs broken both of his legs broken, and then he, he's thrown into uh, the water, and he'd been knocked unconscious uh, when his legs were broken. And then you can imagine hitting that cold water, the San Francisco Bay, that would wake you up. So he finds himself, legs broken, in a great deal of pain, floating in the harbor, absolutely helpless. No means of, of doing anything to save himself. And there were many who were drowning around him. But he, he's there and he is floating for hours, not knowing what would happen, what would become of him. And finally, that helpless man was drawn up out of the water by a rescue party. You can imagine just uh, the, the relief and, the, uh, and the, the joy that he felt. And what did he have to understand? What was the reason that he was saved? By his own efforts? No. He's doing absolutely nothing. He was saved because outside help came to intervene. He was saved because of that rescue, search and rescue team. His salvation did not come from within himself. It came from another source. And that is the conclusion that we are called to come to. As we look at this miracle, as we see Jesus healing this man, 
We have to come to that same conclusion about our spiritual need, that we are spiritually sick, and that our only hope comes from outside of us. And our hope is found in Christ alone. Acts 4 verse 12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Christ is the only one we are to look to. We don't even look to ourselves. And we, we don't abide by Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Our hope is not found in anything that we do. Galatians 2.16 Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Jesus graciously healed this man, initiating the healing. He intervened in this man's life for good, and we must see how that portrays our own salvation. That is the only way any of us come to faith. Christ intervenes to save us. We don't do anything to save ourselves. And our sinful condition as human beings creates these spiritual needs that are greater than the physical needs that we face. We've, we've seen this so far, right? Spiritually sick, in need of spiritual healing. And that healing comes from outside of us. And then this third truth that we, we see this morning. It's going to be that we are sinful to our core and therefore we need a complete and a continuing transformation. And I just want to look at these, these verses briefly this morning, verses 9 through 15. We're going to look at them more next week, but it's really important for us to see how this man responded to the healing that he received from Jesus. If you look with me, uh, beginning at the end of verse 9, it says, Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. What we see here is how this man responds. He shows no gratitude. He gives no honor. Gives no thanks to Jesus for the miracle that he had performed in his life. He's totally apathetic to all that has taken place. And we, his apathy is shown just in the fact that he didn't even know who healed him. He didn't even think to ask Jesus' name. Also, when, he, when he's found by Jesus later on in the temple complex able to speak more with Jesus. He expresses nothing. But then after speaking with Jesus and, and finding out the name of the man who healed him, what did he go do? Went back and he, he reported it to the Jewish leaders. And he had no desire to know or to follow Jesus. 
And again, it was, as we've seen in John's Gospel, he likes to, to throw characters alongside one another. We're very different. And we're, we're called to, to compare their responses. Begin to see, hey, what was the response of the Samaritan woman when she understood who Jesus was? She went and told her whole village. What was the response of the, the royal official when he understood who Jesus was after Jesus had spoken and immediately from a distance healed his son? It says that that royal official, in essence, told his whole household. His whole household believed in Jesus. But this unnamed man, he wanted healing. But he didn't want Jesus. Wanted blessing, but he didn't want to follow Jesus as a disciple. And, and when we when we look at that, it's an ugly picture, right? We we look at that and we say, wow, wow, how could how could he do that? How can you be that unthankful? We see this and and we are amazed. But I would also say this, there's something else that this miracle teaches us. Teaches us, gives us a visual explanation as to why our salvation has to be complete and it has to be continuing. Because the, the words in verse 14 here, uh, Jesus speaks when he sees them, him in the temple. Says, hey, See, you are well. Sin no more. The idea is stop sinning that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus' words in that verse imply that this man was sick for all of those years because of his own sin. Now, sin is not always the cause of sickness. And we're going to see that later on in John 9. And John 9 and John 5 are two chapters that are intended to be compared. We'll talk about that more when we get to John chapter 9. But there's so many similarities to them. But but this healing here in John chapter 5, this man being physically healed by Jesus and then wanting nothing to do with him, shows us why our salvation has to be complete and continuing. And it shows us what salvation would look like if it was just a one-time thing. If it was just a one-time cleansing. Hey, sin makes a mess uh, of your life and you, you cry out to God and says, all right, I'm going to wash you and then uh, that's it. I'll give you that, uh, that hose down. You'll be clean and you just go on your way. That's all that Jesus does for us. What would immediately happen? We'd be dirty again, right? We, we would sully ourselves again because we, we still have a sin nature. Right? You all have, have cars. Some of the teenagers are like, oh, almost. Uh, one day you'll have a car. And what do you always have to do with your car? You have to wash it. And no matter how many times you wash it, it still tends to get dirty. Like if you can make a car that doesn't get dirty anymore, sign me up for that. Right? And you've all seen those cars where someone has taken their finger, and usually what do they write in the grime that has accumulated Wash me, right? And, and how many of you have taken a, a long road trip? Now, you drive across the country, and what do you have caked on the front of your vehicle? Yeah, just bugs, right? So you're going to need a whole lot of cleansing power and some elbow grease to get those bugs off of your car. And you may work so hard to get all of those bugs off of the front of your vehicle, but then what happens? 
It's like one of those halfway rains and all of the water drops just stay in the car and you're like, I just washed my car and now it's dirty again. But we see this is not how God saves. He doesn't just say, hey, here's a one-time cleanse. Here's a, here's a one-time cure to your, your spiritual sickness. Because we still have a sin nature, we need to be continually cured, continually healed, continually washed. We have to have this for our souls. Yes, at the moment of salvation, again, we, all of our sin is placed upon Christ and we get all of His righteousness and we are completely washed. But then there needs to be an ongoing, a continual cleansing of our souls because we continue to dirty ourselves. Sin continues to, to have a, a staining effect upon our lives, not in a, in a way that condemns us and brings back the wrath of God, but in a way that, that tarnishes us and impacts our relationship with God. And just praise God that He doesn't just wash us once, but along with uh, that cleansing is what we saw in John chapter 3, the new birth. That God gives us a new heart, takes out uh, the old and, and He puts in something new so that we won't desire sin as we used to. But now we will desire to follow and obey Christ. And we should praise God for the salvation that He offers to us in this way, that it is a complete and a continuing salvation. Jesus healed this man physically, but the man didn't want anything else from Him. And we have to want more than that. We have to want... The cleansing from Jesus and then a continual renewal from Him. We have to want to follow Christ, not just receive blessing from Him. We have to seek in this life and have to acknowledge. And and that was my prayer uh, for each of us. Number one, that we would acknowledge our own spiritual sickness before God. We would humble ourselves and, and be honest about our condition. And if we're honest about our condition, then we can really assess and address our needs. We have to acknowledge that our, our hope for healing does not, does not come from within us. It only comes from Christ. Only through Him. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And we have to see and understand that we are in need of a salvation that is much greater than a one-time cleanse. It must be complete and it must be continuing. We see all of this in these verses about the miracle that Jesus performed on the Sabbath. And as we look at this miracle, as we look at this, this passage, what we, we see that Jesus performs this miracle. We see the response of this man. And what we are, are looking at is a, is a microcosm of the entire Gospel of John. Because the Gospel of John, what the Apostle is doing is he's presenting Jesus as the light. The light who comes into the world. He comes to his own, but his own did not receive him. He wanted no part of him. 
this man, or Jesus comes and initiates this with this man. Jesus comes and says, hey, do you want to be healed? And the man says, yeah, I'll receive the healing, but I want nothing else from you. And it's easy for us to, to look at this unnamed man and to, to scoff at his unbelief and, and to rebuke him in our hearts and say, well, I would never, I would never do that. I'm so glad I'm, I'm not like him. But here's what we have to, to also acknowledge and to keep in mind. That even if we are a, a believer, even if we are following Christ and have been for many years, we still have a little bit of this man inside of us. There are still moments when we take the healing, forgiveness, and salvation that we have in Christ, we take that for granted. So what do you mean? I don't, I don't do that. Sure you do. Because whenever we choose to sin, what are we doing? Saying, in that moment, we're saying, Jesus, I want this sin more than I want you. Saying, I'm going I'm to turn to something else other than you, Jesus. And in that moment, we're saying, hey, we, we want the, the blessing from Jesus, but I don't want to obey him right now. I don't want to follow him. I don't want to be a disciple of Christ in this moment. I kind of just want to do what I want to do at this point in time. That's what I mean. Each time we choose our desires over the commands of Christ. That's what we're saying. Jesus, I want your blessing, but I don't want to follow you. Each time we, we answer in anger, because we, we want a certain response from someone else. Each time we, we turn to pleasure, possessions, or people to satisfy us, to, to be a solution to our problems. We are doing what, exactly what this man did. Not to the, to the same degree, not walking away from Jesus, but in that moment, we have the same mindset. And that, that should pierce our hearts. That should get our attention because it's really easy to see how ugly it is in someone else, isn't it? Really easy. But what are we called to do? First, examine ourselves. Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says, before you help uh, your brother get that, that little splinter out of his eye, what should we do? Get the log out of our own. And all of these miracles that Jesus performs in this gospel, they show his deity. They show that he is worthy of our worship, our, our honor, our praise. But it also teaches us so much about ourselves and about our salvation that Jesus has initiated with us. The spiritual healing that he has blessed us with, he initiated. He's worked to save us. And may we have a different response than this man had in John chapter 5. Amen.